Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you now proclaiming just how great you are. Lord, we know that there are many ways in which we fall short of your glory and your greatness. And we are grateful, Lord, that you have provided for us your Son. Father, we pray that now, as we open your word, that we would hear from you, not from me, from you, that you would speak in place of me to the hearts of every person here, that we would walk out believing how great is our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. I am 34 years old, and I've been a Christian for 26 years. So if you do the math, I think I've done the math right. I was 8 years old. When I made public a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, truth be told, I don't remember a time when I wasn't a Christian. I don't remember a time where I would call myself an unbeliever. I was like probably many of our children here. I, I grew up in church. I grew up going to Bible studies. I grew up hearing the Word of God taught, but there was a definitive moment in my life that I can point to where I remember that I thought to myself, I need to make this faith that I believe public before the church. And I did so in baptism when I was eight years old, October 21st, 1991. Now, if I were to look at my life and just do a, a survey of my life were to come up on the screen and a graph of spiritual growth were to be shown there on the screen, which I'm, I'm thankful that it's not, but it, if there was, you would probably see the first eight or so years post-baptism as being a, a period of, of growth, of spiritual growth, where I, I grew in knowledge of the Word, in wisdom, in understanding, um, and fruit was produced out of my life. But then I think you would see a totally different story in the next eight years. What I refer to as the dark ages of my own testimony. A period of several years where growth was little. I think it was there, it was just harder to see and it was fraught with difficulty. Lots of struggling with sin and sinful issues. And, and I realized the war that I was actually engaged in. But to tell you the truth... I. I don't know how I could accurately describe it as a war because it seemed like I lost so many of those battles. I think often I was really confused as to which side I was fighting on. I think this is probably true of many of us in our life. There's times where we're fraught with difficulty in struggle over sin. And it was during that time in my life where the Lord seemed distant and unapproachable. And it was difficult for me to really believe that He loved me. 
So often I, I question how, how he could honestly love me. And I think if you had asked me at the right moment during that struggle, I would have probably guaranteed you that he didn't love me. There's often this struggle in the Christian life, I think. The way we think about our own uh, salvation or the way we think about our own life, we think about it in terms of good days and bad days. They're the good days that we have, the days where we're really practicing the spiritual disciplines that God has given us. Man, I'm, I'm on a hot streak. I'm really doing what the Lord is requiring of me. And we think to ourselves maybe, I really feel like I'm making God proud. Like he's standing up there in heaven and he's going, you know, Michael, this was a good day. This was a really, this was a really good day. And, and really, we should just string together a couple more of these, all right? Just put on a little hitting streak here, all right? I'm not talking about home runs, just base hits every day, just a little bit. And then the bad days come along where the struggle of sin seems really ever-present in our life and we feel like God is up there just looking down at us and maybe he takes off his glasses. Excuse me, my microphone. Puts his hand on his forehead. Just goes, Michael, Michael, Michael. Oh, what am I going to do with you? Tell you what, just go to your room until I cool off, right? And we think of God like this, like an earthly parent. We think that maybe there are days where he looks at us more favorably than others because of the good things that I've done today. And there are other days where he's got one foot out the door and he's waiting to leave because of all the bad decisions and the bad choices that I've made during the day. As we look at our text this morning, what we're attempting to do is really grasp the reality of our own salvation. What's it really like? And really, I want to ask and answer one question. How is it that God can love us, His people, in spite of our sin? How is it that God can love us in spite of our sin? Now, as we get to this point in Matthew, we're going to be struggling this morning through some deeper concepts that I want us to understand that are going to be necessary for us to understand in order to grasp and lay a hold of other things that Matthew is going to explain to us throughout the book. So there's some deeper concepts that I'm going to lay out in front of you this morning. So all I'm asking is if it's the first time you've encountered this way of looking at this passage, just bear with me, all right? Just try to wrap your mind around what's happening here, and then we'll see it'll pay off in the end. What we're being introduced to at this point in Matthew is this character, Jesus Christ, who has come onto the scene. And Matthew has already explained to us in chapter 1 that he is king, that he is born of the line of David. We saw that at the very beginning of chapter 1. He is king. He's, he's ready to sit on the throne. He is of the line of David. And then in the second half of chapter 1, he's explained to us that he's not only king, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is king, but he is actually fit to be the Messiah because he is God in the flesh coming to dwell with us. But then comes the question, what kind of king and what kind of kingdom is this that he's coming with? It's very clear at the beginning of chapter 2 that this kind of kingdom is a threat to all earthly powers. And we saw that last week 
as Herod begins to get nervous about this one that is called king of the Jews. And we're going to see the pinnacle of that this morning. So Herod is nervous. All the worldly powers are put on notice about this king that's been born into the world. Now let's turn to our, our passage this morning, Matthew 2, chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son." Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, anytime we're reading the Bible... Our job is to really understand what is happening in this text. What is going on in this text? What's the meaning of this text? And as we go through and as we read through the Bible, if we put on our good Bible reading glasses, what we'll see is repetition. And anytime we see repetition occur in the text, it should clue us in as to what the author is really getting at. Well, what kind of repetition do we see here in this passage? You probably noticed, reading your text, there's three sections that pop off the page, or should pop off the page. And each one of them ends with something that's happening in the scene, fulfilling something that was spoken of by the prophets. Each section ends with something that was being fulfilled. In verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then again in verse 17, uh, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And then again in verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. So three times we see this phrase repeated throughout this text. And it clues us in as to what Matthew's purpose in this text really is. Now, our task is to determine why Matthew has organized these facts this way. It's clear he's making a point about Jesus. We even see that from the context of the book that we're in. We're in the introduction where he's just starting to lay out who this guy Jesus really is. And so it fits even in the context. He's making a point about Jesus But what is the point that he's making? Now, if we read the Bible like a history book, then Matthew is just laying out a bunch of facts. 
He could just as easily have told us what Jesus' shoe size is or, any, or what kind of clothes he wore or anything like that as much as he did this story right here. Because it's, right, it's just a history book, just a bunch of, of facts. But if instead of reading it as a history book, we read it as a theological book, a holy book that's divinely inspired, that contains theological truths about this Jesus, this person of Jesus, then there's a reason Matthew has given us the facts that he's given us. Have you ever thought for a second, why are there four Gospels? Why are there four Gospels? Why didn't they all just get together and write one massive Gospel that just contained all of the facts that they knew about Jesus? In fact, Matthew and Luke are the only ones that even give us any infancy of Jesus, any childhood of Jesus. Without them, we wouldn't know anything that happened before Jesus' mission takes, it takes place. Mark and John just seems to be absent altogether. But there's a reason why Matthew has given us these stories, and they serve a very important point. This Jesus, what's Matthew's point here? This Jesus fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets. This Jesus fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets. Now, when you and I hear the phrase, fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets, that shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us. In fact, I think most of us could probably think of several passages in the Old Testament that immediately come to mind that Jesus fulfilled. Isaiah 53. Just saying Isaiah 53 in a Christian audience raises some hands. Not in a Baptist audience probably, but you get the idea. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. I mean, that verse could just as easily be read in the New Testament as it could be the Old. If you were to close your eyes, you might even think that that was written in the New Testament. But it's Isaiah looking forward and prophesying about the Messiah to come. What about Isaiah 7? Matthew mentioned Isaiah 7 just a few passages ago. He said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We've always looked at that verse and we've said, Look, that is clearly about Jesus coming. How about Moses in Deuteronomy when he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That's probably Joshua is coming up right after Moses, but ultimately the fulfillment of that passage we would say is none other than Jesus himself. We could go on and on and list hundreds of verses in the Old Testament where we would say the prophet is looking forward, he's looking into the future, and he is predicting what this Messiah will actually be like. And that's the way we think about the Old Testament, is we go back there and we look at individual verses where there's a prediction of the Messiah coming up, and we say, look, here's a prediction of the Messiah, here is it fulfilled in the New Testament. And so then it doesn't really make sense sometimes for our minds to wrap our minds around the the saying, the the whole Old Testament, not just individual verses, the whole Old Testament points to Christ. What does that mean when we say something like that? The whole Old Testament points forward to Christ. When it comes to prophecy, we usually think of Old Testament prophecy in one, maybe two categories. The first category of Old Testament prophecy is uh, uh, foretelling, right? Foretelling. 
where a prophet comes before maybe a king or maybe the people, and he tells some event that's going to take place in the future. And that's even a criteria for a prophet, right? Is that it has to come true. God tells his people, look, if a prophet comes before you and he says something's going to happen in the future and it doesn't take place, that man's a false prophet and you need to kill him, right? So there is a role of a prophet that is a foreteller. He comes before the people and he tells an event that's going to take place in the future. And so when we read Old Testament prophecy, we're looking for that. Is he foretelling about an event that will come forward in the future? But then the second category is forth-telling, where the prophet comes before a king or the people and he tells something from the mouth of God. It's not necessarily concerning something that will take place in the future, but more the way that they should interpret the events that are going on around them right now. I am telling you, thus says the Lord. This is straight from the mouth of God. It's not necessarily about an event that's going to take place. It's, it's, it's about things that are happening right now, how you should interpret them. So you got foretelling and foretelling. And these are the two primary ways we look at the Old Testament, especially in regards to the prophets. They're either telling us about an event that will take place in the future, or they're telling us about things that are happening right now. What is God saying about these things? But if we only ever look at the Old Testament with these two lenses then our passages in Matthew where he says that Jesus fulfilled something in the Old Testament are going to be really difficult for us to understand. They're going to be really, really difficult for us to understand. Instead, the New Testament authors are giving to us a third way of looking at the Old Testament, a third lens to add to our reading glasses. The lens is called typology. It's looking at the Old Testament and understanding that Jesus is the fulfillment of something. Not a prediction in the future, necessarily. Not about events that are going on around them right now. But typology is really concerned with new models versus old models. Here's the old model. Here is the new model. I realize that may be a new concept for a lot of people in this room. So let me explain. You may not have, think that you, you have used typology when you've read the Old Testament, but I guarantee you, you have. If I said to you, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Would you understand what I was talking about? Yeah, absolutely you would. And if I said, how do you know that? How, how, how does that make, how would you explain that? That Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Well, you would probably look back at the Old Testament. And you would probably say, well, let's explain the Passover lamb first. The Passover lamb was spotless. right? The children of Israel told to come out of, out of Egypt. There's going to be a tenth plague, and it's going to be the death of the firstborn son. Here's how you're going to be spared. As you take the lamb that's spotless, you slaughter it. You take the blood from the lamb. You smear it on the doorpost of your house. And the angel of death that comes to take the life of the firstborn son will see the blood of the spotless lamb and will pass over the house. Right? Now, if I said, how's that about Jesus? You would say, well, if you think about Jesus, he led a sinless life. He was the spotless lamb of God. His blood was shed on our behalf. So that if we believe in Him by God's grace, we have faith in 
Christ, the blood of Christ is applied to us, and the angel of judgment, or eternal damnation, eternal death, will pass over us and will be given eternal life. So we would say the Passover lamb is a type of Christ. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that Passover lamb. He is the new and better Passover lamb. And not only is is that true, but we're not looking for any more Passover lambs, right? We're not looking for any more lambs to come. Jesus fulfilled it. He completed it. He was the perfect Passover lamb. We need not any other Passover lambs. He is new and better and perfect. This is reading the Old Testament through the lens of typology. Now, we use this term sometimes in our culture today. When a company is going to produce a product, what do they produce first? A prototype, right? It literally means a first type. If I were to show you a prototype of the iPhone, none of you in this room would want to buy it. It was massive, about that big. It was clunky. It had all kinds of ports on the side that no one would ever use. It had all kinds of stuff that a nerd looking at it would go, I would never I would never buy this. This is ridiculous. But the prototype of the iPhone wasn't made for you to buy. It was made for testing purposes, to see what could eventually be made. But now all of us, or many of us, have in our pocket an iPhone, right, that's beautiful and sleek and is the pinnacle of modern achievement as far as industrial design. It's beautiful and wonderful, and and millions of people buy them all the time. But that, that the purpose of that prototype is to teach, is to help the, the engineers understand what needs to go into this product. So the Passover lamb is not the polished lamb of God. But it was still used by God to teach all of his people how he deals with sin. What sin actually is. So the Passover lamb comes in as a teacher for us. To help us understand how God's going to deal with sin. And so that in the future, when Christ dies for us, it makes sense to me. I understand why Christ would die. I understand why He's called the Lamb of God. He's a sacrifice on our behalf. The Lamb is a type of Christ. It's a teacher. And it points me to Christ as the ultimate fulfillment. Now, our problem as we read the Old Testament is we often fail to see these types throughout the Old Testament. So when someone says the Old Testament points to Christ, it doesn't really make sense to us. Well, certain verses, I can clearly see that, but how does the whole Old Testament, every verse points to Christ? But truthfully, the Old Testament, when it's read correctly, will always point forward to Christ. So Matthew is looking back into the Old Testament and he sees many of these old and imperfect types that Jesus would come to fulfill doing perfectly what I myself, through the sacrifice of bulls and goats and lambs, could never do perfectly. Jesus comes in and does perfectly. So now let's go to Matthew and let's look at the text that's been presented to us in just a different, a different sort of light. He, he's going to point out three different fulfillments that happen as a result of Joseph and Herod's actions in this text. 
And so I want to highlight all three of them and then go through them very quickly and explain what they mean. So buckle up. It's going to be fast. All right. The first thing that we need to see is that Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is the new Israel. He's the new and perfect Israel. In this, uh, in this first section, verses 13 and 15, through 15 there, Joseph is warned in a dream by an angel of what's about to happen. Herod's going to get really mad. He's going to come in and he's going to, he's, he's, he's already ticked that the Magi didn't come and tell him where this Christ child could be, could be found so that he could go and just kill that Christ child. They didn't come back and tell him, so he's really mad. And so the angel tells him, take uh, the mother and the child and flee to Egypt. Now this might seem like it's just God protecting this baby. And it is that. He is protecting the child, but it's also a lot more than that. Look at what Matthew says. He says, they're fleeing to Egypt. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through, through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. In other words, he could have sent him to Europe, he could have sent him to Asia, he could have sent him anywhere, but he sent him to Egypt, and that was to fulfill. There was a purpose behind him sending him to Egypt, and it was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now he quotes Hosea 11.1. 1. You can write that down, or you can turn there if you're fast enough to go to Hosea 11.1. 1. We're going to read it in just a second. He quotes Hosea 11.1, 1, but what's interesting about Hosea 11.1 1 is that if you read the context, it doesn't seem like Hosea is predicting the future. Let's read it. Hosea 11.1 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now let's read verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. The passage that this verse occurs in is an indictment against Israel. They were called out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son. And what happened after they were called? They ran away. They started pursuing idols. They started sacrificing to different idols. So when you read the verses in Hosea it's clearly God talking about the nation of Israel and how He's called them His Son. He brought them out of Egypt and yet they go off and they worship false gods. Now, if you don't have the New Testament or you don't have this quotation by Matthew, there's a good chance that when you read that in Hosea, you're not coming to Jesus. It looks like Hosea is forthtelling a message from God to the people. That Israel would read this in the future. They would look at this passage and they would go, we have sinned in that we have left God. But then we're left to ask now in the New Testament reading this going, Matthew, what does that have to do with Jesus? What does that have to do with Jesus? But if you watch Matthew's structure over the next few weeks of how he depicts these different things that happened in Jesus' life. You look at the story as it flows. What happens to Jesus? He is called out of Egypt. And then what happens to him next? He goes through the waters of baptism in chapter 3. He's called out of Egypt in chapter 2, much like the children of Israel are called out of Egypt. Matthew points that out, just like the Israelis were, or the Hebrew people were called out of Egypt. He then goes through the waters of baptism, much like the Hebrew children go through the waters 
of the Red Sea, then where does Jesus go? Out into the desert for 40 days. Where the children of Israel also go out into the desert for 40 years. Then the children of Israel are marching into the promised land, and what are they bringing? The kingdom of God, and do they do it? No. What does Jesus do? Goes back into the promised land and delivers a message of the kingdom of God. See, here's what's happening in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is doing perfectly what Israel failed to do. He is walking through and retracing the steps of Israel, yet he is doing it without sin. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the Son of God. He is literally, physically, the Son of God. God in the flesh, coming out of Egypt and walking through the steps of Israel, yet He is doing it without sin. What Israel was commissioned to do by God, they failed to do. Christ is going to take up and perform perfectly what they failed to do. Jesus is the new and better Israel. Second, Jesus is the new and better rescuer. Jesus is the new rescuer. So, so Herod gets really mad, and he decides to become a genocidal maniac, and he goes on a, a killing spree, murdering all of these children two years and under around the area of Bethlehem. Now, we're not told specifically how many people this is. I've seen estimates from 20 up to 1,000 but really, we don't, we don't know. I think it's probably he's killing the, the, the male children under the age of two in and around the town of Bethlehem, which is probably going to be a relatively small number of children. So I would probably lean more towards a 20, but we're not told. Could be 20, could be 1,000. It just it really depends on how big the area was. So we don't know for sure. But the point is that in the scheme of this book so far, Herod is under a threat that there's somebody else being called king of the Jews, and he doesn't like it. And so he goes into this area, and he begins killing every male child under the age of two. And he's hoping that this king of the Jews, whoever this is, will be a casualty in this genocide. And this is the point where Matthew quotes the Old Testament, and he quotes Jeremiah 31.15, and he says, then was, uh, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, in the context of Jeremiah, what's going on is the children of Israel being rounded up and being taken off into exile into Babylon. And they're being rounded up at, in Ramah, which is near the, the burial of Rachel. And so there's the depiction in Jeremiah of Rachel in her grave weeping. It's like what, when we say a person rolled over in their grave. Uh, this isn't really about shame or anything like that, but it's, it's more about uh, a picture of Rachel who is buried nearby where they're being gathered and taken out of the promised land. She's grieving over the loss of her children. They're being taken away. But, but I think what's happening here is Matthew is not simply just referring to the verse, Rachel is weeping. He's referring to the context as well. The children of Israel being hauled away into Babylon, into exile. Rachel is crying. But then if you read the following verses in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 16, it's God, God tells Rachel this, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, 
for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. Now we know this actually happened. Some years later, Cyrus from Persia walks into Babylon and destroys Babylon. And in a surprising turn of events, he doesn't keep the Jewish people as slaves. He sets them free to go back to their homeland. But I think what Matthew is doing, he's invoking the words of Jeremiah of the children led out into captivity. He's invoking that image of Rachel crying. He's bringing it into the present situation. And he's looking at the death of these infants, these innocent little baby boys at the hands of this tyrant. And he's telling them true hope has been born. That right now you're crying. Right now you weep at the death of these children. But listen, hope has entered the world. God is in control. In Jesus has come the true rescuer. In Jesus has come the fulfillment of this captivity. Right now, you're in bondage at the hands of this tyrant. But hope has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And he brings with him a new kingdom. And those who put their trust in him, death will be no more. So take heart, Rachel. Jesus is the new and better rescuer. And I think this is tremendous for us. There are plenty of people in our congregation that are in the midst of suffering. And it may be for various and sundry reasons. Losses of loved ones, illness. There are plenty of reasons why there are people around us that are suffering. The, the question that so often comes to mind in the midst of the suffering is what on earth is the purpose? And I think for most of us in this room, even good, solid, Bible-believing Christians, we ask that question in the midst of suffering. What on earth is the purpose of this? In Jesus, we actually have a meaning to suffering. And it's only in Jesus that we actually have a meaning to suffering. Paul reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. He says, For this light and momentary affliction, this suffering that we're going to, he calls it light and momentary, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. The affliction that we're going through, the suffering that we're going through is light and momentary. What's being prepared, what it's being used for is oh, an eternal weight of glory as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What is he saying? He's saying that suffering actually is producing in us something. It's actually being used by God to do something in our lives. Of course we can't always see it. We have to trust in the fact that it is being used by God to produce something for us. Amen. It does a lot of things, but not least of which is it produces us in us a taste and desire for the homeland. Oh, yes. 
Now, I've, I've told you over and over, Paul has brought it up in Colossians, we studied it. Matthew's beginning just now to introduce it, that Jesus is bringing this new kingdom with him. And that we now, as we put our faith in Christ, we've been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. But then we've been mar- turned around and marched right back out into the domain of darkness to bear light for the kingdom. And what does suffering in the midst of the domain of darkness do for us but leave us with a desire to go home? It's meant to produce that in us. As Paul will later say in Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Suffering is producing in us that aspect of our call, our confession, that to die is gain. Look, if life was perfect, I don't know if I could say to die is gain. Have you thought about that before? Can you say that right now? To die is gain. Now, it might be easy sometimes in the midst of pain and suffering, whether it's emotional suffering, whether it's physical suffering, it might be easy to say, I just want to escape. To die is gain. That's not what Paul's talking about there. He says to die is to go and be with Christ. That's far better. But to live as Christ means that I get to continue to go about doing fruitful ministry. That that God is using me and my life to produce fruit in the lives of people around me. I am used for his benefit and for his kingdom. So to live as Christ, whether I go about living in the body, that's fine. If I die, that's far better. I mean, the perfect of all situations. Whether I'm suffering, I am being prepared for an eternal weight of glory. And if I die, I get to go be with Christ. Putting the phrase together, to live is Christ and to die is gain, is to recognize that Christ is our rescuer. And not only has eternity been prepared for us by him, but I long to be there with him. And the longer I'm here, the better that's going to be. I'll continue to be prepared for it. Third, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. So Matthew takes us forward in the story a little bit, and we're not told how long. It couldn't be more than one or two years, probably, but uh, Herod is dead now, and the angel appears to Joseph in a dream. This is now the fourth time in the book so far, and he tells him, rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land for those who sought who, 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 um, those who sought the child's life are dead. And that last part is exactly what God tells Moses in the land of Midian. He says, go back into Egypt for those who sought your life are dead. But Joseph is, is now told um, that he takes, he, to take the child. So he takes the child and his mother and they, they go back to Israel. But Herod the Great, on his deathbed, changes his will. And instead of leaving his whole kingdom to Herod Antipas, his son, he divides it up amongst uh, his, his other sons. So he has Herod Antipas takes part of it. Archelaus takes another part. And Herod Philip takes another part. And so Joseph probably thinks the land is going to be governed by Herod Antipas. And he gets there and he realizes it's not. Archelaus is over the region he wanted to live. And so he departs there and he goes specifically to Nazareth. Now comes this third statement by Matthew. And it's the hardest one. It says, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this isn't a direct quote from the Old Testament. We don't have this quote anywhere in the Old Testament. So he says, what was spoken by the prophets 
might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, it's an indirect quote. It, it, Matthew's not trying to quote anybody. He's indirectly quoting. It might be like us saying, you know, he said that whatever, whatever, whatever. We're not actually giving you the exact words he said. We're giving you the general feeling of what he said. And so Matthew's doing the same here, but he, what he's doing is he's pointing to the kinds of statements that were made about the prophet, or about the Messiah coming forward by the prophets, and how he was to be perceived. And Nazareth fit exactly in the kind of person this Messiah would actually turn out to be, that he's pointed at throughout the Old Testament as one who is to be deeply despised and abhorred by the nations, one not, not of comely appearance that we should look at him. We get those throughout the depictions of the Messiah coming in the Old Testament. And what is known about the town of Nazareth is that it was a dump. It was a terrible place to come from. Even Philip points this out in John when they tell him this, this person has come from Nazareth. What does Philip say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? He's pointing to the fact that it's a dump. Even by the people that lived in Galilee, they understood Nazareth to be a terrible place. How could a Messiah possibly come from that place? And the point that Matthew is making is that Jesus fulfills all the expectations we would have of the Messiah coming forward. But then we have to ask, why does this matter? Why on earth would Matthew point to these various fulfillments and tell us that Jesus fulfilled these roles? What is the point of this? And the answer is because this gets to the very heart of the gospel message. As we read through the Old Testament, we see time and time and time again the Jewish people failing at what God had laid forward for them. He brings them out of Egypt and parts the Red Sea, walls of water on either side, and then brings the waters back together to crush Pharaoh and his army and destroy those that would seek to kill the Jewish people. And yet, Moses goes up on the mountain for not 40 days and they're worshiping a golden calf. told to go into the promised land and conquer, drive out the people that are there, and time and time again they choose not to do that. Instead, they keep them on as slaves and begin worshiping their gods. Over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we see time and time again the Jewish people are given opportunity after opportunity, and yet they fail. And it's very easy for us to look into the Old Testament and go, man, those Jewish people are so hard-headed. Man, they couldn't turn to the Lord and they couldn't, they couldn't just obey the things that he said. I mean, how easy is that? Just go, walk into the land, one person shows up and he drives out a thousand. How easy would that be to just follow what the Lord is saying in their life would be great. But the more I look at the Jewish people, the more I see myself. Time and time again, fail to exercise the kind of patience that I should with my children. I fail to sacrifice myself for my wife as Christ did for the church. I fail to forgive people for their offenses, keep track of wrongs done, even though that's not love. Time and time again, I come back to the Lord and confess my sin to Him, 
And I can't help but think sometimes, surely this is the time. This has to be his tipping point. Surely this is the moment where he's tired of hearing from me. How could he not be? I'm getting tired of hearing from him. The heart of the gospel message is that Jesus lives a perfect and sinless life. And in so doing, he fulfills what God requires for righteousness. In the next chapter, we're going to see John baptizing Jesus. That'll be in, in two Sundays, not next Sunday, the Sunday after that. John is baptizing Jesus. And when Jesus gets in the water, John says, why am I baptizing you? Shouldn't you be baptizing me? You have nothing to repent from. Don't, I'm the one that needs to repent. Shouldn't you be baptizing me? And what does Jesus say to him? It is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus is doing all of the things that God requires of his people, including baptism. What happens then is at the end of his life, because he has fulfilled all the righteous requirements, what does he deserve? Rewards. He deserves the righteous rewards that come from righteous obedience. But the beauty of the gospel is that he does not take them. The beauty of the gospel is that instead, on the cross, he presents to God the Father a substitution whereby he would be punished for your sin, and by God's grace through faith, you would be rewarded with his righteousness. It is necessary to understand Jesus as the fulfillment, because when he died, we actually gained something. We actually got something. We didn't just lose punishment from our sin. We actually gained the righteous rewards that Christ earned. And the temptation is that for any of us in here, is that when we follow Christ, there's this temptation as we sin to doubt God's love for us. And if God loved us simply because of who we are, we would all have to worry. Every single one of us. Even the one behind this pulpit. Especially the one behind this pulpit. We would all have to worry, but God doesn't love us on the basis of how good or how bad we are. He loves us on the basis of Christ. If you have put your trust in Christ, when God looks at you, He sees Christ. And when He sees Christ, He sees righteousness fulfilled. Now we can and we should ask ourselves some very hard questions. Since I came to Christ, when I received Christ, has there been fruit that's been evident in my life? It's necessary to ask questions like that. Have I really received Christ? Am I a follower of Christ? Or am I sitting here thinking that God loves me simply because of the good things that I've done today? If so, then that's not the gospel that you believe in. That's you that you believe in. That you can pick yourself up by your bootstraps. It's simply not the truth of the gospel. But we should ask us those, ourselves those questions. Is there fruit that's been produced in our life since coming to Christ? Are people growing around me? Are people growing in their relationship with Christ because of my influence and discipleship on them? Do people around me know that I'm a follower of Christ? It's really asking ourselves, am I a Christian? Those are good questions to ask. We have to ask those questions. But if you can confidently say, yes, I am a Christian, then we should never ask, 
Is God tired of hearing from me? In Christ, you're a son or a daughter. You're not a crazy uncle. Like we all have around Christmas time. You're not the crazy uncle. That's not the role that you play in the family. You are a son or a daughter of the king. In Christ, you are called a child of God. So brothers and sisters, my encouragement to you is to trust in Christ's righteousness and not doubt God's love for you. It's not on the basis of your work or my work that God's, God loves us. It's on the basis of Christ's work. If it's on the basis of my work, I'm up a creek without a paddle. But if it's on the basis of Christ's, I'm a son or a daughter. Thank God it isn't on the basis of my work. Jesus Christ has perfectly accomplished what I never could he took the sin and the punishment thereof that I deserved. He took them on his own shoulders and he gave to me instead his righteousness. And it's by God's grace through faith in that act that I can receive salvation. This is how God can still love me in spite of sin. Because Christ's work has justified me. He has fulfilled all righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for the work that you have done on my behalf. Because what's evident in your scriptures is that I couldn't do it on my own. Father, give to us the confidence. to approach you in prayer, knowing that you are our loving Father who loves us as your children. That we can fall on our face in front of you, worship you for who you are. We can cast our cares on you because you care for us. And we can invite others to do the same. I pray, Lord, that the confidence that we have in our own salvation would not be squandered, but would be shared with others. Through our testimony of where we stand in front of your throne, that others would come to know you as well because they want the forgiveness that can only be found in Christ. I pray that you would do that through this congregation. Father, as we prepare to take up the tithes and offerings, pray that you would use that for the ministry of this church going forward. That it wouldn't be squandered, it wouldn't be wasted, it would be used to see people come to know Christ. Thank you for all the ways that you have blessed us and ways that we cannot even enumerate or cannot even express that you have blessed us with. We're grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If we could have our ushers.